Hello, welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill, this is episode 129. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody. This is the part at the top of the show where I tell some anecdote about, about my life or I mention the weather, but I don't really have anything. The weather is what it is. It's still hot, it's still humid, makes the garbage out in the garbage can stinky. And I don't really have a witty anecdote right now. Not that life is tragic and horrible. I just don't really have anything all that interesting to tell you at the moment. So, here's what you need to do. You need to pause the recording, uh, pause the episode, and insert your own witty anecdote. And then turn the show back on. So I will pause for a moment so you can do that. Okay, let's get on with the news. We'll top things off as we always do with a Mad Mike Hughes update. What's Mad Mike been up to this week? Not much, it turns out. The last posting on his Facebook page was June 8th. That's right, it's been a month now since he posted anything. No, wait, I take that back. We have an update. July 6th. Everything is set up at the Rusty Bull. Alright, there's the limo. Uh, Of course, as we know, Mad Mike makes his living as a limo driver. So there's the limo pulling a little trailer with a green rocket on it. Somebody uh, in the comments asked, how's your back, Mike? Sounds like you're okay. Be safe and post video. I believe he hurt his back in the original launch uh, some time ago. Of course, he's on a quest, supposedly, to prove that the Earth is flat by shooting himself up into space with a rocket so he can take pictures of the flat Earth. He has been promising to do a launch again at some unspecified date in the future. In the meantime, he's been promoting uh, a movie about himself, apparently, that's coming out in, I think, August. He has been offering for sale pieces of the first rocket, pieces of the parachute that the rocket came down with, etc., etc. On July 6th, also, he posted a link to an interview with KVVB-TV promoting this next stunt, which I don't think is a launch into space. He was going to do a press conference on July 7th at Gene Wood's Racing Experience to announce his next big stunt. So far, all these postings are postings about a time when he's going to make an announcement, not saying when he's actually going to do anything. I think this is his announcement about how he's building this boat to run on, uh, to set some sort of ice. Okay, that's what it is. He's building a boat, but it's adaptable to run on ice. So this winter, assume winter of 2018-19, he wants to capture the ice speed record. Okay, but I guess first he's going to run on water sometime this year. And I guess that's what he was supposed to announce. But he has not posted on Facebook the content of his announcement. So let's see what I can find. Exhaustive Google research that I did just now doesn't tell me anything. So, if you live or wander off near a body of water and you see an idiot in a really fast boat, uh, let me know, because that might be him. Uh, We'll just have to wait and see. Alright, I am thrilled to say that I got a little bit of feedback since the last time I recorded. Some of this relates to episode... 127, that was the freeway episode, I think. Well, I know the feedback relates to one, uh, relates to freeway. I'm just trying to remember if it was... Yes, episode 127, 
was the freeway episode. I didn't get this feedback in time to get it into episode 128. A couple of people, one of them being Ferd, hi Ferd, from, uh, uh, of course, from the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast, he reached out, as did uh, Sean Courtney, uh, who I'll get to in a moment, uh, to point out to me uh, that I'm a dumbass. The feedback this week, the tone of it, politely, is that, uh, as I already know, I am a bit of a neophyte when it comes to Atari history. I've been very open about that. I played Atari games as a kid. I liked them. But then, as I got older and, honestly, got into Nintendo, I kind of put the Atari games away and didn't think much about them for literally decades after that. So, uh, I don't have the history. Uh, I certainly didn't. When I started the podcast, I feel like I know more stuff now than I did, of course, a couple years ago when I started the podcast, and I, I am enjoying continuing to learn, but uh, every once in a while it becomes particularly obvious that I just don't know anything. So Ferd was helpfully pointing out that, because I had mentioned in my discussion of Freeway, that it was uh, originally called, the prototype was called Bloody Highway. Actually, it wasn't Bloody Highway. It was Bloody Human Freeway. He helpfully points out you can play it on the uh, Activision Anthology, or if you have an emulator, he and then he sent me a link to the Atari Age listing for that. So uh, I'm a dumbass. I should have known that. My research clearly was not as thorough as it could have been. That said, I don't actually have an emulator right now. I should. I'm a bad podcaster. I should go find an emulator, and I for many reasons, including being able to play Bloody Human Freeway. Or maybe I'll seek out the Activision anthology. So thanks for helping me with that, Ferd. I'm just, uh, I, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm just going to shut down the podcast now. Let's just play the end music and, and be done. Oh, all right. I had other people write in, so I might as well stick around and, and at least let you hear from those people. Jim Fullerton, a friend of the show for a long time, also responded on Twitter. I had put out a call because Freeway very specifically has games that are supposedly designed around the traffic patterns at different times of day in very specific places. Lakeshore Drive in Chicago, I think the Beltway in D.C., somewhere in San Diego or San Francisco, something like that. Jim, uh, and I asked anybody, you know, have any of you ever been on these stretches of road, you know, at these times of day? Is it really like what you're seeing on the screen? And Jim uh, wanted to let me know that he has traveled the Capitol Beltway at 6 p.m. He saw cars and trucks, but no chickens trying to cross the road. Well, why not, Jim? Keep your eyes open. Although I guess really it's better if you watch the traffic than if you're looking out for poultry. So that was probably the safe choice. So thanks for letting me know that, Jim. If you're in the D.C. area, apparently it's poultry-free. So, you know, happy driving. And then, as I mentioned, I heard from a longtime, also longtime friend of the show... Sean Courtney, of course, you guys all know that he is one of the hosts, along with Jim from uh, on Pie Factory. Sean also does the um, Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, and he is just generally uh, very knowledgeable about games in a way that I am not. So he wanted to weigh in on the on the whole Bloody Human Freeway thing, and also give me the Lakeshore Drive perspective. Sean writes... Hi, Bill. Been a while since I reached out to you about Atari stuff, but come on now, let's face it, you knew deep down inside that with the mention of Chicago and Lakeshore Drive, that would spark a response from me. It's something I call dauber bait. 
He is known as Dauber in various places, I think. <laughs> so getting back to Sean's email. First off, rerouting Bloody Human Freeway and your call for homebrew developers to get working on it. Yeah, see, that was me being dumb. I was like, well, someone should make that game. But he, of course, points out, again, dumbass. He doesn't say that. That's me. It's already there. Just go get it. So he also gave me the link to the Atari Age store. Here's a link you want to check out, especially if you have a Harmony Tart. See, here's the thing again. I don't have a Harmony Tart. I've gone back and forth over the years I've been doing this podcast. Should I get one? Should I not get one? Man, it's a little pricey, although I understand for what it lets you do, it's worth the money. But still, that's, you know, a big chunk of mine spent at once and blah, blah, blah. And, and I really like the cartridges. I like the tactile thing. I like looking at all the cartridges, you know, in there in my in my uh, soda pop crates that I keep them in. It's just fun for me. And I feel like if I had the cartridge, I would feel compelled to not get the... If I had the Harmony cart... I would feel like not getting the cartridges. And, and that would make me sad because I like to look at them. So uh, I resisted getting the Harmony cart. I will probably give in uh, at some point soon when I actually have an extra chunk of cash to uh, that I feel like I can justify for that. So, uh, moving on, Sean says, Now, I was listening to the Freeway episode as I was riding my bike to work this morning. As you know, by now, I live in Chicago. The way I bike to work, if it's not too windy... If it's not too windy out, it's the busiest bike trail in Chicago. The Lakefront Trail, which is situated between Lake Michigan and Lakeshore Drive. Uh, so, of course, it was only fitting that I was on a part of the path abutting Lakeshore Drive when I was listening to the part where you mentioned Game 1 of Freeway. Wow, spooky. A little, little uh, weird synergy there. Oh, and then he offers a parenthetical. Don't worry, I wasn't biking with headphones or earbuds, but with a speaker on my backpack... So as not to interfere with my hearing. I've always wondered about that when you're on a, a, a bicycle. You know, how do you listen to stuff? Because obviously you don't want to have ear, earbuds in or whatever because it distracts you and you can't hear what's going on. Same reason you wouldn't do that when you're driving a car. But a speaker, one, how can you hear it without cranking it really loud and then you know bugging everybody around you? But obviously it must work because people do it. Sean says... Is Lakeshore Drive at 3 a.m. anything like Game 1 in Freeway? Well, in terms of structure, not really. I was pretty sure about that, Sean. First of all, Lakeshore Drive has a big divider in the middle, which would make it impossible for a chicken to safely cross all lanes of traffic. I am beyond thrilled that people like you and Jim are really giving thought to the safety of the chickens. That's uh, That just makes me happy. Sean says, like I said, Lakeshore Drive only has three lanes of traffic in each direction, not five. But in terms of traffic patterns, actually, it's not too far off. I've been on Lakeshore Drive at that time on more than one occasion. It's not terribly busy at that time, but it's not really too dissimilar from how Freeway Game 1 plays. You have a few cars on it, mostly driving reasonably safety, safely, but of course you do get the occasional speed demon at that hour. Mind you, this is 2018 Lakeshore Drive. I don't know about 1981 Lakeshore Drive. Back in those days, my trips to Chicago were few and far between, although quite memorable and exciting. My six-year-old brain back then didn't really pay close attention to patterns on Lakeshore Drive. I do know that back then, northbound traffic was behind Soldier Field, and southbound traffic passed in front of it, but sometime in the 90s, the traffic flow was redesigned so that all traffic went in front of Soldier Field. Also, at some point, there was a really, really nasty S-curve around Oak Street downtown that was pretty dangerous. I don't know if it was before or after 1981, but the S-curve was made much safer, and there are plans to make it even smoother. But of course, the S-curve in Soldier Field may be irrelevant to Freeway, as Lakeshore Drive is about 18 miles long, give or take, but Freeway only deals with a very tiny stretch. 
I have been on Lakeshore Drive uh, a limited number of times, and I'll be honest, it freaks me out a little bit. I don't, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I live in a, a super rural town. I don't live in a rural town at all, but it's a it's a decent sized town. But that said, uh, when I go to a place like Chicago, uh, it does freak me out a little bit. Sean says, one way that Freeway Game 1 is not accurate is that there are trucks on the highway. Again, I don't know about 1981, but at least as long as I've taken Lakeshore Drive myself, pretty much since I got my first car in 1997, I can tell you the trucks are not on Lakeshore Drive. Not even pickup trucks. Interestingly, though, buses are allowed. Now, regarding Frogger, when I first played Freeway, of course, everybody knows who's played Freeway, it pretty much just looks like the first part of Frogger, with little frogs trying to get across the road. Sean says, when I first played Freeway, I immediately dismissed it as a lame Frogger ripoff. But here's the thing. Something I learned when I was researching our Frogger episode of Pie Factory Podcast was that Frogger didn't hit American soil until October 1981. Which means if Activision were trying to ride the coattails of Frogger, they had two months to do it for a 1981 release. I have no idea specifically when a 1981 Freeway actually was released, but it's highly unlikely that it was influenced by Frogger after all. And in fact, if Freeway was based on any previous game, it would be Atari's 1973 arcade game, Space Race. And he gives me a link uh, to a YouTube video of that, um, which, I'll be honest, I haven't actually looked at. But I will do so, because that sounds kind of interesting. I don't know what month, actually, Freeway came out either. If I said it in the Freeway episode, honestly, I've forgotten it at this point. And I could go back and look, but I'm kind of lazy. And I got a new game to get to this week, but I see your point. Um, they had a very limited window, and, you know, and the time it takes to develop a game... It does seem unlikely that they were basing it on Frogger. Sean concludes, uh, and at least in Chicago, we still say Expressway. He's calling me out because I, I offhandedly mentioned, does anyone call a highway like this an Expressway anymore? And he's saying, well, yeah, dummy, we do. Next time you're in Chicago, you're in the Chicago viewing area, tune into any TV or radio traffic report, and you're sure to hear, hear the term Expressway, usually tied to names like Kennedy, Eisenhower, Edens, Bishop, Ford, and Stevenson. And the thing about that is is that while everybody here knows all those expressways by their names, you will see maybe one sign on each expressway with those names. If you're from out of town, you're screwed unless you know what portions of what interstates those names refer to. And that's part of why, you know, things like Lakeshore Drive and expressways in strange towns freak me out a little bit is that yeah, if you live there and you drive them all the time, you know all this shorthand. You know the different names, and you know all that crap. But if you're from out of town, uh, yeah, you're screwed. Uh, so Sean says, but that's for another Atari game, assuming there is one where you have to know expressway names. If there's not, Sean, some homebrewer should make that. He says, thanks for taking an, in my opinion, boring game and turning it into a fun podcast episode. No, no, Sean, thank you. Thanks as always, Sean. Uh, that was great. Uh, and Jim and Ferd, thanks for writing in. Keep doing so. Everybody else, you can do that too. It's just that easy by emailing me at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Whatever you want. You have an idea about a game I, I've played uh, in any of these 129 episodes, including this one. Do you have a thought about the story within the game? Because that's, of course, what we do around here. If you have a thought about me, what the hell? If you have a thought about me, write in. Whatever you want, uh, I will read it. Uh, maybe I'll read it on the show, especially if it's super complimentary of me. Um... All right, last bit of news. Uh, of course, my, my call for that I put out in an episode or two ago, an offer, I guess, in a way. If you have a podcast 
or you know somebody has a podcast and you suggest this to them, doesn't have anything to do with video games, I might want to do a swap. Which means, I come be on your podcast, talk about whatever you talked about on that show, you come on my podcast and do what we do here, which is talk about Atari games, and more specifically, make up a little story about what's really happening in the games. If that sounds fun to you, let me know. Maybe we can set something up. Okay, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is... Yes, one of the new games of the century from 20th Century Fox. Squee! Did you see? No, you didn't. This is an audio podcast. But do you know, just from the history of Atari, who is in that commercial that you don't actually hear? Because you hear some anonymous announcer guy. For just a second, as the commercial starts, you see some generic teenager, although I think at this point he would have been in his 20s, bedroom, and this dude comes and he, he kind of flips his chair around and does the one leg over the back of the chair thing to sit down. Camera pans up to his face and for just a second you see a very young Brian Cranston. Who's he? If you're a Breaking Bad fan, you know that he is the star of Breaking Bad. Walter White himself was in an Atari commercial. Although the poor dude doesn't get to say anything. So I'm just he didn't get paid twice as much. Unless he did actually have dialogue and they cut it out or something. I don't know. But for just a moment, it's Brian Cranston. And then the commercial, the rest of the commercial plays. You hear the announcer talking about the game. You see screenshots of the game in progress. And then the end of the commercial is there's a huge hole blasted in this bedroom wall from the destruction, I guess, from the the Moto Force Rider thing, whatever the ship is called. And Brian Cranston's nowhere to be seen. So I'm guessing they killed him. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they decided that was a little too intense for a 1981 Atari commercial. I don't know, but it's kind of cool. A little extra uh, trivia for you. Brian Cranston did at least one uh, Atari commercial. Joining the ranks of luminaries like George Plimpton, who actually did an, a television commercial, not an Atari commercial, uh, and of course our buddy Alan Alda. So here's the thing. If any of those guys want to come on my podcast and talk about this, I would love to have them. Well, except George. Uh, George passed away, of course. But hey, if he wants to talk to me from the other side for the podcast, that would be cool too. Alright, so Megaforce is a 20th Century Fox 1982 game. And as we will come to know here in a moment, it's direct tie, a blatant tie, to an action movie put out by 20th Century Fox the same year. Uh, but first, let's talk about the game. Because of your reputation as a clever and daring member of the Megaforce, you have been sent to Sardoon a strategically important democratic nation currently under attack. Your mission is to destroy the enemy headquarters. Armed with the world's most advanced fighting machine, the Moto Fighter, you are dropped off just outside Sardoon. You must pass the city and make your way across the barren desert to the enemy headquarters on a limited supply of fuel. You'll be challenged the entire way by heavy air and ground attack. Should you travel too far into the barren desert, flashing arrows, arrows will direct you back toward the enemy. That's the only help you can expect. Using the joystick for this one, it's pretty simple. Tilt the joystick forward, backward, left, and right to maneuver the Moto Fighter around the screen. 
The motorfighter fires missiles at a downward angle when on the ground, and when the motorfighter takes to the air, it fires straight forward. Either way, the motorfighter can fire while moving forward or backward or while stationary. The game information is displayed in the bar at the top of the screen. The first line displays the current score and warning messages like alert, which warns that deadly enemy aircraft are approaching from one from the right. Defend lets you know the enemy aircraft are close to or are attacking Sardoon, and the information bar will flash from blue to black when Sardoon has been totally destroyed. Your fuel supply and entire and extra motorfighters are tallied on the second line. And then we get an image of the playing screen at the start of the game. Here, can you guys see in the back? Okay, good. Each game of Mega Force is made up of several increasingly difficult rounds. A round ends when the enemy headquarters has been destroyed. Uh, remaining motorfighters are carried over into each new round. All objects, prizes, and fuel are replenished. You must use the game select lever to advance to another play level. Level 1 uh, is normal gameplay. You have 39 gallons of fuel and 4 moto fighters. You gain up to 59 gallons of fuel during play. Level 2 is advanced. You get 29 gallons and 3 moto fighters. Level 3 expert, 19 gallons of fuel and 4 moto fighters. Level 4 is the easy practice game. Seems like it would go the other way around and that would be game 1, but it's not. It's game 4, level 4. You begin with 99 gallons of fuel and 8 moto fighters. Also, enemy aircraft do not shoot at you. Okay. Not sure what the practice part comes in. They're just sort of sitting there, but alright. Left difficulty switch A. Prizes under the field depot appear in random order. Left difficulty switch B. Prizes appear in fixed order. Right difficulty switch A. Enemy aircraft are allowed to pass you. Right difficulty switch A. Enemy aircraft allowed to pass you will head for Sardoon and attack it. Right difficulty switch B. Enemy aircraft allowed to pass you will play, will stay and protect field depots. They will occasionally go to Sardoon. Then we have another image showing the middle of a round. There you go. If you squint, you can probably see the ship in the back. There you go. All right. One gallon of fuel is lost for every second of gameplay. Your moto fighter will flash when its tank is almost empty. If you run out of fuel, you lose a moto fighter. Also, you lose one if you allow Sardoon to be destroyed. It seems like if you let the objective of the game be destroyed, you should lose more than one moto fighter. Just saying. Palm trees, lakes, and arrows. Blasting these will have no effect on the game. Ground rockets can be destroyed only before they are launched from the ground. You receive 300 points for each one shot to pieces. Enemy aircraft are worth 100 points each. Any allowed to pass by may head straight for Sardoon on a bombing raid. Every time an enemy bomb blows up a Sardunian tower, this information bar will flash to white and you will hear a muffled explosion. Each tower destroyed in Sardoon, which is white, is worth 100 to 400 points and adds 10 gallons of fuel to your tank. Remember, however, once Sardoon is destroyed, you cannot earn any more points during the round, and you lose a moto fighter at the end of the round. Which I think explains why I was griping in the field report about how my score wasn't going up. I think at that point, I just didn't realize that Sardoon had been destroyed. Uh, sorry, Sardoon. Each tank demolished at a field depot is worth 80 points and 10 gallons of fuel. If you destroy the entire depot, you get a prize, which you can also shoot. If allowed to scroll off the screen, prizes disappear. Make sure they are safe prizes, then shoot them right away. Don't shoot enemy aircraft or ground rockets found under the field depots. The consequences are severe. Then they have a little price chart. Missile, moto fighter, enemy aircraft, ground rocket, yellow palm, man, arrow. Ground rockets are able to rise to the top of the screen in order to reach you. You can, all, you can elude them, unless they are directly under you, by quickly reversing the moto fighter's direction. As the, at the higher levels, however, it is safer to avoid the ground rockets and go on to the next round. If you need to rest a bit, Head for the desert area left of Sardoon or right of enemy headquarters. Enemy aircraft cannot fly into these areas, and while you are there, they will not 
bomb sardine. Sort of an honor code among enemies or something, I guess. Lastly, we're told, and of course, that's what it says, and of course, this game was made by Fox Video Games in 1982. That is how you play Mega Force. As I mentioned, Mega Force was also a 1982 action movie, directed by former stuntman Hal Needham and written by James Whitaker, Albert Ruddy, Hal Needham, and Andre Morgan. It took four people to write it. It was based on a story by Robert Cackler. The film starred Barry Bostwick, Persis Kambata, Michael Beck, Edward Mulhair, George Firth, Evan Kim, Ralph Wilcox, Robert Fuller, and Henry Silva. The film was poorly received by critics, bombed at the box office, and was nominated for three Golden Raspberry Awards, including Worst Picture. In the movie, two fictional countries, the peaceful Republic of Sardoun and their aggressive neighbor Gambia, Sardoun is unable to defend itself from a Gambian incursion, so it sends Major Zara and General Byrne White to ask the help of Megaforce, a secret army composed of international soldiers from throughout the Western world, equipped with advanced weapons and vehicles. The Megaforce leader, Commander Ace Hunter, will lead a mission to destroy the Gambian forces, which are led by his rival and former military academy friend, Duke Guerrera. So, Hunter composes an elaborate battle plan... Zara tries to become a member of Megaforce as she executes various tests. Hunter's feelings of affection toward her grow. While she passes the test, he's unable to allow her to participate in the raid because her presence as an outsider disrupts the trust and familiarity of the forces. Eventually, Megaforce successfully paradrops its attack vehicles into Gambia and Hunter mounts a sneak attack against Guerrera's forces. They destroy the base, but Guerrera has set a trap for them. At the team's only means of escape, a dry lake bed where cargo planes will pick them up. I hope I'm not spoiling anything, by the way. If I am, uh, well, too bad. Guerrero sends his tanks to secure the lake bed while Hunter comes up with a plan to attack Guerrero from behind by crossing over a mountain range the enemy tanks had turned their backs towards. The plan succeeds, Megaforce manages to break through Guerrero's tanks, but one of Megaforce's cargo planes is damaged. They have to abandon their high-tech vehicles, which they program to self-destruct, and successfully make it on foot to the last plane except for Hunter. The commander instead makes his own dramatic escape on his motorcycle after it it deploys airfoils and a rocket motor and catches up with the cargo plane in mid-air. Although he's lost the battle, Guerrero shows admiration for Hunter's cunning and gives his old friend a thumbs up. Wow. It came out in summer of 82 amid much competition. It was felt that the film would be overshadowed by The Road Warrior, and it's on the list of, of films with a 0% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Hal Needham later described the movie as kind of a version of James Bond done with a hell of a lot less budget and no Roger Moore but a high-tech, good right-wing film, and kind of interesting. If you take a look at Desert Storm, there's a pretty good resemblance to my vehicles. They were pretty slick, pretty tricked out, and they had a hell of a job putting those together. In the DVD introduction to the Season 2 South Park episode, The Mexican Staring Frog of Southern Sri Lanka, Trey Parker graphically describes Megaforce as if it were the plot of what the viewer is about to see. Matt Stone stops Parker in mid-sentence and reminds him that he is describing the movie Megaforce and not the episode. A disappointed Parker remembers and says, We should have done Megaforce. That was a sweet movie. We should have done that. Their film, Team America World Police, includes a number of apparent references to the film, including similar scenes of a flying motorcycle and an underground base where the hero meets various specialists. Mattel also produced a Vertibird and Hot Wheels playset based on Megaforce's theme. A video game based on the film was released in 1982. Duh. IMDB gave the film 3.5 stars. Hm. As for the game, 8-Bit Central says that when it came out, the game was dismissed as an average shooter with no outstanding qualities. Despite being a terrible movie, a sequel was considered in the main film, and the title was curiously the subtitle seen on the cover of the Atari 2600 game. Deeds, not words. The sequel was never made. 
If there was anything deserving of a sequel, it's Megaforce the Atari video game. For all the complaints about the film, the Atari video game has some interesting facets. Most notably is the automatic conversion of your motorcycle from dirt bike to flying jet simply by moving it across the horizon line. Slick. Surprisingly, the Atari 2600 video game is pretty good. The pace is quick and the transformation from land to air is very seamless and doesn't cause any game lag. I have to say this is a great game compared with how vilified the film became. Part of its dismissal as a generic shooter may come from its origin. Titles like this one were often regarded higher if they were arcade ports. Coming from an alpha movie may have had a more negative effect on Megaforce than it deserved. Final Judgment, surprisingly fun game with some interesting dynamics, perhaps tainted by the lousy movie on which it's based, visually pleasing, with good sound and good play. GameFacts.com says, why rip off a good game when you could copy an average one? The pros, playable once you get used to it, pretty colors. Cons, pointless objective and overall gameplay, awful controls, annoying sounds. The premise is so simple, so how could the game be any less than average? It's like they wanted to make a bad game on purpose. Megaforce is extremely derivative of Atari 2600 port Defender. It took a lame shooter and made it even lamer. I'm sure that's going to anger the uh, Defender lovers out there. This reviewer doesn't like that you can't control the speed of your fighter, so in order to advance the game, you must tap the joystick to inch along the field of play, or fly as fast as possible. Both methods are illogical. Enemy fighters fly across the screen at a ridiculously fast pace, so there's very little time to react. Even on the easiest setting, it would take a tremendous amount of practice to get used to the game's pacing and fairly large field of play. The entire game is pointless because there's only one objective and it can be accomplished within minutes. The game claims to have different rounds, but in order to advance to the next round, you simply reset the game and use the game select switch to move to a higher level of difficulty. But they're not truly different stages if you have to reset the game in order to play them. The field of play never changes, so it's the same game repeat, repeated indefinitely. And unlike classic Sisyphus-style arcade games of the era, you don't get to carry over your score. Also, there are no one-ups to be earned, so what's the point of keeping score to begin with? The graphics are impressive, as much as its overall color scheme is. The background is a cool shade of blue, and the foreground is a dark orange-light-brown mix, which is surprisingly complimentary. The actual spaceships and enemies and fuel tanks are run-of-the-mill, though. Recycling sounds from other 2600 games is forgivable, but... The frequent warning alert sound is an annoying high-pitched siren. It's a shame Megaforce is such a bad game, because it clearly has a lot of potential. Alright, well after the break, Mega. Mega Mania. I mean, Force. Mega Force. I practiced that for hours before I started recording. Mega. Mega Force. It's gonna drive you insane? Nailed it! Hi, welcome to Force. Can we get you a drink to start off with? Yeah, I'll have some Force. Alright, do you want the Mini Force or the Mega Force? Come on, Bill, don't be a wimp. Alright, I, I guess I'll have the Mega Force coming right up. Of all the many, many games I've played on this podcast, I think Mega Force got blasted already. Feels most like I can totally see this in an arcade game of the game type. I just destroyed a palm tree. Sorry, environmentalists. Man. I got a prize. Why didn't I get any points? The ship's taking off get me every time. 
because you, you come onto them, you know, come up on them right from the previous screen, and you have no time to react. Why am I not getting more points? This game looks to me like what Defender would look like in the daylight. That's the end of that round. I gotta play some more. Um, the colors are good. I do kind of wonder what, uh, you know, democracy we're protecting here, Sardoon. I, I mean, it's looking at the uh, at the architecture and the uh, buildings. Clearly, this is supposed to be a Middle Eastern country. This was made in the 80s. Um, well, it could be today too, of course. Eastern countries were all the rage in films and whatnot. It's funny how little uh, things have changed. by the landscape, the pinks and the oranges and stuff, it kind of suggests like maybe it's supposed to be sunrise or sunset, but the sky itself is clear blue. I don't know what's going on there. Something weird with the sand, too. It's not really sand colored, it's kind of brown. I like the ship, the moto, uh, the mega fighter thing, whatever it's called. Changes from a thing that looks vaguely like a horse on the ground to a snowmobile in the sky. Just kind of weird, but alright. Well, for me, I'm actually doing pretty well. But my score has stayed at 1500. I'm very confused. I'm not sure who I'm defending Sardoon from, because it appears to be UFOs attacking. There's some sort of alien invasion? I don't know. Many, many questions. None of which we're going to answer. Back to you in the studio. So here's the thing about Megaforce. I said in the field report, this felt like you could totally see it in an arcade, although it's apparently not. It's definitely not an arcade port. <sighs> Sitting at home playing it, uh, I had fun, actually. It was frustrating, uh, for all the reasons that I went through in the reviews. I agree with all that stuff. But at the same time, I kind of feel like I want to play it more, which I guess is the sign of a good game, right? If you want to keep playing it. Because it intrigues me. I do worry a little bit that's going to get super repetitive, super quick. I gravitate more towards the Atari games that give us different things to do. Like, uh, well, Cosmic Arc is the one that comes to mind, because I have my cart and box sitting here. You know, with different different elements to it, and this one doesn't really have that. Uh, it's a shooter, right? Nothing wrong with that. Just uh, that's what it is. But like I said, it's an intriguing shooter. I, I've never, I've never been a huge Defender fan. 
uh, and I, like I said in the field report, this feels like Defender in daylight. But, you know, I've never hated Defender either. So, yeah, I, I, I'm okay with this game, and I might play it some more, which, uh, which I think is a good sign. The real question, though, is what sort of story is there to be told? What mysteries lie within Megaforce? I think it's clear what's going on here. It's clear who the hero is, and it's not Barry Bostwick. No offense to Barry Bostwick fans. The real hero here is our old buddy, Steve Stetson. We've had a couple of Steve Stetson adventures already. Uh, He, of course, is the super spy from the 70s and 80s. And he's here once again to save the world. Because that's what he do. And now I give you Megaforce, a Steve Stetson adventure. It's 1985, late at night. While the world sleeps, its defenders are awake, trying not to crank the stereo too much, softly basking in the glow of bossiness that surrounds those people, the ones who keep the world safe. The bossist of them all is Steve Stetson, superest of the world's super spies and supremiest of the world's lovers. He's also pretty good at mahjong. Stetson has earned a little time off, but not this night. Oh no, tonight his phone rings yet again. He really should get an answering machine. It's Lieutenant Colonel Stan South, calling from the Pentagon. Get down here now, Stetson. There's an international incident to deal with. But I was about to put my floppy into Suzette's disk drive. Computer Mahjong can wait, Stetson. No, no, Colonel. That was a euphemism for sex. The Colonel laughed. Just get down here. Stetson hangs up. Sorry, Suzette. We'll play some other time. Suzette pouts and picks up her computer equipment and goes home. Mahjong will have to wait. Stetson Charlie Brown walks to get a cab. In the office of Lieutenant Colonel South, Stetson finds South's assistant frantically shoving documents into her undergarments. The word classified peeks out of the top of her shirt. Classified, eh? Stetson says. Sounds sexy. Is that a store in the mall? Colonel South appears in the doorway. Stetson, get in here. Stetson follows Colonel South into his office. He is not invited to sit down. South just gets right to the point. You ever been to Sardoon, Stetson? He asks. Not sure, Stetson says. Is that Chef Basil's new restaurant? It's a country, Stetson, the colonel says, pointing to a wall map. One of the few democracies in that part of the world. Right now it's being pummeled by the enemy. That's bad, Stetson says, with only the faintest hit of question mark at the end. The U.S. government is all about democracy and peace, South says. So we need you to lead a covert military team down there and crack some heads. Stetson gets excited. Can I drive a moto fighter? Colonel South sighs, pinches the bridge of his nose. I suppose, he says. Fill the gas tank before you return it. He tosses Stetson the keys with the Skeletor keychain. Woohoo! Enemy headquarters never knew what hit them. This is for America, Stetson screams as the moto fighter's guns blast a hole through, well, through Megaforce HQ, 
Although Stetson was certified to drive the motofighter, it had been a while, and, well, those controls are darn confusing. The raid that actually did occur on enemy headquarters was fast and overwhelming. Stetson, though, missed most of it because he was standing in a corner of Sardoon as punishment for destroying Megaforce HQ. Driving the Megaforce was Tim Timpson, an 8th grader from Des Moines, who won a writing contest, What I Would Do for Democracy. However, we're talking about Super Agent Steve Stetson. He's not going to be sidelined by anything, especially his own incompetence. As he moped into the Sardunian Cinnabon to pout into a caramel pecan bond, he bumped into a large gentleman pounding bond bites and moping, just as much, if not more, than Stetson was. This man had a spike-covered helmet and an eye patch. A big scar snaked its way across his left cheek and stretched all the way to his face. He should probably put on some clothes. Stetson recognized him at once, sort of. Aren't you Lester Arnott from 7th grade? He asked the man. Bits of bond bite dropped from the man's mouth as Eyepatch Man muttered, Marino. Stetson got a better look at the man and regretted it. Seriously. Dude, chew with your mouth closed. And realized, Wait, you're... But at that moment, the bond bite dude pinned Stetson to the floor. The Cinnabon clearly had not won any cleanest restaurant awards, and the man shoved a bond bite into Stetson's ears. The experience of icing sliding down his ear canal brought back a memory. Oh right, you're Jasper Welcome from ninth grade. Jasper was a huge bully and also president of the chess club. Jasper had gone on to found a terrorist organization. It was all coming together now, mostly in Stetson's pants. While the feeling of sticky sugar in his underwear was... diverting, Stetson had to stay focused. Jasper had to be the leader behind this attack. Stetson brained Jasper with a napkin holder and dragged him out of the Cinnabon, straight out to where Stetson's commander, Maddie Grimm, was waiting. I got him, Stetson said. I got the square leader. Ring leader, Grimm said. Yeah, Stetson said. That's what I said. Anyway, I caught him. Sardoon is saved. Well, done? Grimm said, feeling weird saying that to Stetson. Her grin was melting, like the rest of her. Wearing her standard mock fur coat and hat into the desert now seemed like a bad idea. You're hot, Stetson said. Yes, Grimm said. Yes, I am. She tried to wink. It looked weird. Nah, I meant because it's hot out here. I know. I was kidding. Oh, that's what that was. Sorry, I've got frosting in my ear. Want to lick it out? You're an idiot, Grimm said. that's our show. My thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for creative commons use of his songs Reformat, Pinball Spring, Take a Chance, Killers, and Volatile Reaction. Show notes are available at AtariBytes.Libson.com 
along with other episodes and social media and all that other good stuff. You can email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at Atari Bytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. And of course, I occasionally post weirdness at Instagram on the Atari Bytes page. And don't forget, it requires a minimum level of fuss to leave a mega review of this podcast on iTunes. As if following a noisy moto fighter, those reviews help others find the show. You can also, if you're able, support the show financially on our Patreon page for Atari Bytes, and I thank you in advance for doing so. If you have time, check out my other show. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. It's only once a month, not a huge commitment, but within that show, you get everything you ever wanted to know about Peanuts. The comic strip, the characters, Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, Schroeder, Peppermint Patty, Marcy, Woodstock, uh, Violet, Patty, Shermie, uh, Frida, Pitpen, uh, Franklin, uh, Roy, uh, on and on and on. Uh, the animated specials, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Schultz himself. We cover everything on that show. So go check it out. There will be something that interests you, I promise. 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes. Snake. That's how I have to say it. There are literally three S's in the front of that word on the cartridge. So I'm guessing it's a game about rare parakeets. I don't know. Tune in and find out. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.